Welcome to Singing in Harmony with Heaven. Today I'll be reading my second blog on the topic of the extraordinary form and the ordinary form of the Mass. Old Form, New Form, Part 2. We are continuing to reflect on the principles which Pope Benedict articulated in his letter to the bishops, which accompanied his motu proprio of 2007, entitled Somorum Pontificum. But before we move ahead to the principles of reverence and magnanimity, I'd like to address an important comment which I received in response to my last blog. Here it is. Quote, Pope Benedict speaks of the importance of honoring our great Catholic liturgical traditions, and you have also emphasized this point frequently. But while acknowledging this idea in theory, my experience of those who seem most deeply committed to their Catholic or Eastern Orthodox liturgical traditions has generally not been a positive one. In attending various Orthodox and Eastern Catholic liturgies, I have been struck by behaviors that seem to indicate that these people are indeed proud of their cultural and religious heritage, but don't seem to be particularly kind, loving, or spiritual. Similarly, in traditional Latin mass parishes, there seems to be an emphasis on exterior rules and correct liturgical practices that minimizes the need for a personal relationship with Jesus and the fervent love which is the fruit of such a living faith. And so would I not be moving away from the essential dimension of our Catholic Christian faith, knowing and loving God, by doing, as you suggest, in delving into the so-called great traditions of the liturgy and its sacred music? This is a great comment and question for which I am most grateful. I would first respond by clarifying and emphasizing the word honor. To honor our great traditions does not necessarily mean to delve into them, study and practice them, etc. Rather, it means, first of all, to acknowledge their important place in church history, to be open to discovering their beauty, and not to speak ill of them. For those practicing them in the context of the liturgy, to honor also means to do them in a way which corresponds to their purpose, that is to say, to draw us more deeply into God's holy presence and grace. When these traditions are done in a way that conflicts with the core of our faith, knowing and loving God, then by definition they are not being honored fully by those people. On the other hand, as we cannot see within the hearts of anyone, we cannot really know what these people's intentions are, or what their own interior experience is. And although prudence might lead us to avoid such situations, charity should compel us to assume and hope the best of each person. For those of us who are called to work directly with liturgical music, primarily clergy and church musicians, there is a certain responsibility to receive a thorough formation in our patrimony of sacred music as well as of the liturgy itself.
even in this formation, the point is not simply to become familiar with the forms, but rather to discover how these forms have been and can still be an inspired sacramental means of drawing us closer to God. In this process of discovery, we still need to exercise the same kind of prudence and discernment as mentioned above, and it doesn't exclude being open to other kinds of music. The difference is that the priest, deacon, or musician must persevere in seeking out places where the sacred music tradition is done well and where its fruits of grace and peace are clearly manifested. Without strong roots in this living tradition, with its strong spiritual orientation, clergy and musicians will be deprived of the needed benefit of these time-tested, universal models. But there is another important point that your comment brings up, which I'd state is something like this. How is it that something which in its origin is so holy and good, namely the liturgy and its sacred music, has become propagated so widely as something which seems to be so ritualistic and lacking in spiritual life and power? The answer to this question lies in the relationship between authentic spiritual life and the institutions which are needed to nurture and maintain this life. The very first Eucharist and the singing which was an integral part of it must have been filled with an abundance and intensity of spiritual vitality beyond imagining. And from all we know of the early church, this vitality carried over into their liturgical worship as well. But notwithstanding its holy form, which is a necessary element in order for this gift to be passed on from one generation to the next, this institution of the liturgy was also subject to the tendencies of all human institutions. As God never forces himself upon people, the sacred liturgy, along with the general spiritual health of the church, has generally gone through a repeating cycle of four steps. One, new beginnings, inspiration, and vitality. Number two, growth and prosperity. Number three, temptation towards self-satisfaction and complacency. And then number four, decline in corruption with a need for repentance and renewal. As we look at the life of various Christian communities around the world today, whether they be Catholic, Orthodox, or Protestant, we can find manifestations of all four of these phases. The call to each of us is to be vigilant in maintaining our own fidelity and fervor of love, which, paradoxically, is nurtured by realizing that we, that means you and I, are the ones who are most in need of conversion. But our resolve to cultivate this fidelity, fervor, and ongoing conversion will also lead us to seek out those places and those people who will support rather than thwart us on this path. The history of the church is filled with examples of this fourfold cycle and of saints who led the way towards great moments of widespread repentance and renewal. Philip Neri, who lived from 1515 to 1595, sometimes called the third apostle of Rome, is one of my favorites in this regard. 
and I encourage everyone who is not yet familiar with him to make his acquaintance. A native of Florence, he arrived as a young man in Rome in 1533. The city at that time was filled with decadence, decay, and ecclesial corruption. Through his life and work, imbued with humility, spiritual depth, personal warmth, service of the poor, miracles, and an unquenchable sense of humor, Rome underwent a profound spiritual and cultural transformation. This included a most remarkable renewal of sacred music, whose effects are still being felt today. The oratory movement, which St. Philip founded, has also continued to thrive up until our own time, bearing abundant fruit in many countries throughout the world. And so, in our quest for the renewal of sacred music, let's always remember that there is a point to our music and the liturgy. This point is to bring ourselves and others closer to God. We can become adept in singing Gregorian chant, classic polyphony, and all other sorts, all other worthy forms of liturgical music. We can and we should work hard to make this music beautiful. But if we have not love, as St. Paul says, we will be merely a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal and gain nothing. This love is a fire which needs to fill our hearts and our music so as to draw ourselves and others ever more deeply into that worship of God in spirit and in truth to which we are called. Well, it seems as if we have again run out of time for the promised reflections on reverence and magnanimity, but hopefully for a good cause. Next week, under the guidance of Pope Benedict XVI, I will once again attempt to return to these important virtues, which in fact are so intimately connected to the fire of charity. Thine eyes.